Okay, so we are going to be in 1 Timothy again this week. If you guys want to turn there in your Bibles. So we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse, uh, once again, verse 8 and following. And uh, this week we start a little bit of a kind of like mini study within our study in 1 Timothy, uh, just because as I've been alluding to, and as you probably can tell, these verses are hotly debated. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled over them. And so we're going to try to spend uh, our due diligence going through them, uh, kind of examining them from all angles, and then trying to see if we can get to a conclusion on them. So I'm going to be reading, uh, in this case, uh, not from the ESV, uh, but from uh, one author's translation of this text, um, just so you guys can get a flavor. Uh, Anytime there's a controversial text and you don't know the original languages, one of the best things you can do is just pick up different translations that have been rendered. So if you read an NIV normally, reading an NLT or an NASB or an LSB or something like that, it's a great way to get a different flavor of the text and see if there's any notable differences or changes. So you can look along in whatever translation you're reading. I'm just going to read from this one author's translation. Uh, it's not massively different, but you can just hear it maybe a little differently. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, I'll be reading. Let a woman learn in quietness with complete deference. Now I am not permitting a woman to teach or to dominate a man, but to be engaged in quietness. For Adam was fashioned first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was deceived, has come into transgression. Now she shall be saved through childbearing, if they should remain in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is the text for tonight. Um, it, it brings up a whole bunch of issues, a whole bunch of problems. And uh, depending on when you grew up or when you came to faith uh, in the Christian church, uh, likely you've witnessed or experienced some of these conversations Um, Depending on what uh, your tradition or background is, you might have all kinds of opinions or uh, different conclusions drawn from these verses. So I recognize all that, and so we're going to try to start tonight just at square one in the text, and we're going to try to build it up over the course of like four or five weeks to try to get through this text. Um, And in that process, I'm going to ask you to not like forget everything you learned before and and start again, because one, that's impossible, and two, uh, it's just not really a good practice. But I am going to ask that you take uh, at least hermeneutically a walk through the text, kind of from a foundational level, building it up. And if at any point in time it's hard for you to jump from your assumption to a conclusion, then you want to challenge that. You want to ask questions about it and kind of try to piece it together as we can. So within this kind of like mini study, we're going to be asking the question, uh, uh, specifically out of verses 11 through 15, what is Paul talking about when he refers to women in the church particularly here as he's talking about submission and what does submission look like in the broader functioning of the church and, and how much of that even applies today. So one of the things uh, we have to start with when we're looking at any passage of scripture, uh, particularly as we're looking at the pastoral epistles, we've been, we've been uh, examining this through the lens of the healthy church, that the church is most healthy, the church is most vibrant when it's being obedient to God's word. And so at this juncture, I want to highlight something we've been kind of teaching throughout and kind of believing throughout, but I just want to bring it to the forefront. In order for a church to be healthy, it has to submit to God's word. For a church to be healthy, it has to be obedient to whatever God has told it to do. Now, the reason that's really important 
is because whenever we run into text that we agree with, we think we take that on assumption, right? This is true. This is the word of God. And whenever we bump into something that seems to challenge our own cultural assumptions or even our own personal assumptions, our default pattern in our Western world is to challenge the text and not to challenge our own assumptions. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to lead us to any particular conclusion. I'm just naming that on the front because we want to, we want to say whatever the text in 1 Timothy says, we want to believe it, we want to be obedient to it. That doesn't actually answer the question because there's a lot of debate about what the text says and what it means. But that should be a posture that we all start with. The reason I say that is because there are some people who have, uh, on the basis of what Paul teaches here, challenged the assumption that Paul even wrote this letter or that this should even be included in the New Testament canon. There are some scholars who would basically say, essentially, I don't know what to do with 1 Timothy, but I definitely know it's not scripture. And people have written commentaries. Actually, some famous authors who, if I said their names, you would know and recognize them as well-known authors, have come to that conclusion when dealing with this text. So I want to say, as a Christian, I don't think it's a good posture to start cutting books out of your Bible. And with that being said, we're going to try to say, okay, what does it mean, as hard as it is, uh, and then how do, we make, how do we make sense of it? So we have to be in submission to God's word first and foremost. Now then, uh, the question of the text. Uh, first, we have to ask a question of how do we understand what any text of Scripture means? This might be a review for some of you. But how we understand any text, uh, Forrest has put forth a healthy, healthy framework. It's not the only framework, but it's one that I found helpful over the years coming to a text of Scripture. Uh, first, we have to ask the question, what does the Scripture say? Then we have to ask the question, how has the church throughout its ages, throughout its tradition, interpreted that text of Scripture? And then we can ask the question, what does my personal reasoning through the text tell me about the text? And then finally, we can ask the question, does this jive with my experience of the lived world and the perceived world around me. Now, the reason I frame it in that order is because you have to know kind of where you're drawing your information from at each source and what level of authority you give to it. Perhaps you get one of those pieces out of order. Let's say, for example, you flip the pyramid and you say, my experience drives everything else, including, for example, what scripture actually says. So it doesn't matter, for example, what scripture meant to its original audience in its original context. If I think that the scripture to me means something different, then that's what the scripture means. Uh, most popularly, you can think about a verse like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And people will say, in my experience, what that means is whatever I want to do tomorrow or today, whatever I'm setting out to do, God will give me strength to do that thing. Divorced from its own context and tradition and understanding. That's not a good hermeneutic for reading scripture. And it's because experience has become the driving factor for how you read everything else. That doesn't, by the way, mean experience is a bad thing. Psalm 34 David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So experience is something that Christians do engage with and drive truth from. We just have to know where we're getting it from. The reason I'm re-highlighting that hermeneutic here is because as we approach this text, we, it seems on its face that it's clear what the text is saying, uh, what scripture is saying. That's actually not true. We're going to kind of get into some of that. But if we can establish what it says, that doesn't actually settle it because then the question is, how does that get interpreted throughout the history of the church? Then the question, how does my, does my own reason, can it make sense of that? And then finally, does this match my experience of the lived world around me? And you have to put them in that order. And the reason reason and experience have to go last on that totem pole is because we live in a culture, in a time, in a place, in a specific part of the world with a certain upbringing and certain assumptions about the world around us. And we are uniquely susceptible, particularly with our own reason and with our own experience, to, to caving to cultural pressure. One of the ways this can be highlighted if the church for, let's say, its entire history has consistently interpreted a text in a certain way, 
And then 50 years ago, someone woke up with a new interpretation that made sense to them and matched their own experience. That doesn't actually challenge what the text means at all. But there are people, for example, with the debate on homosexuality, who have done just that. They woke up in like the 1970s and said, actually, we don't think that that's what the text means, even though for 2,000 years the church has agreed that that's what it means. And then they say, and reasonably I can argue for it, and it matches my experience of the world around me. And so, but what they're blind to is the cultural pressure that has driven them to all those conclusions. That's why tradition is so helpful, because someone who lived in the 1200s is not forced by the same cultural pressures that you are to drive certain conclusions. And so if a truth holds up for thousands of years, let's say if a, a first century Jewish author believed it, and a, and a 15th century author believed it, and finally a, a, an author in the, in the 20th century believes it, then that's a good test to it being true, not just culturally true. Does that make sense? So we want to have all that at play, and I'm just highlighting that because we're going to be bumping into all of these things as we ask questions of the text. So with that being said, let's dive just really quickly into the, the main point of what Paul is saying, and then we can get into all the debates about, you know, how does that become relevant for us today? The main point of what Paul is saying, the radical thing that Paul is saying, is that women can learn in church. That's the, that's the new thing that Paul is adding that's culturally different from before. So if you're a first century here and you hear Paul say, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness in the church, the emphasis of that command is not with all submissiveness and quietly. The emphasis of that command is let a woman learn, which is radically different and something Jesus models in his ministry when Mary and Martha are sitting at his feet as his disciples. That's something that's strange because in the, first, in the ancient world, women were actually not in many cultural and religious contexts permitted to learn. In fact, in the philosophy schools in Greece, they were discouraged from learning. Only men were really welcome in those environments. And so what Paul's saying here is actually subversive in some way to the Roman authority, the Roman world as they see it. Now, the reason we miss that entirely is because we live in our side of history and we think that that is an assumed thing and everything else is the challenge. What Paul is challenging is that women can, in fact, be disciples, can, in fact, learn. Now, that actually matches what Paul says elsewhere, because in Titus, he's going to say the women have to learn. Why? Because, well, they have to teach other women, and they have to raise the next generation of faithful Christians. So, of course, the Christian women have to learn and know Scripture and know God and know his word. But that was not an assumed thing in Paul's day. That's something he has to argue for. It's kind of like when Paul says, uh, now the gospel goes first to Jews. And then, by the way, the gospel is also for the Gentiles. And in the 21st century, we go, well, of course the gospel is to the Gentiles, Paul. But that's the debate on the ground in the first century where people are saying, I think the gospel is only for Jews. And if you have to, be, and you have to become a Jew to get the gospel. So Paul is challenging those kinds of assumptions. That's actually really straightforward. And if we lived in the first century, we probably could settle the passage here and move on to the next week. But we don't live in Paul's world. And so this text has generated a lot more controversy than just that simple point. Because all the controversy of the text surrounds all of the surrounding details. What does it mean to be silent, uh, to not have authority? Uh, what's Paul doing with this creation argument? But what Paul is emphasizing here is clear. Women are to learn in the church. Learning is actually what all Christians are called to do. And the reason for learning is so Christians can be effective makers of disciples. The Great Commission is given, we might say, to both men and women. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's not a male-only command. That's to men and women. So the women have to learn in church. Uh, just like every Christian has to learn in church. So that's, that's what Paul is saying. Now, that actually doesn't settle the question of, of all these things. In fact, I brainstormed before uh, coming here tonight a list of 12 questions we will be asking and trying to answer over the course of the next couple weeks uh, that will challenge uh, what's going on in the text, how Paul is arguing it, 
And we'll try to take each of them in turn because each of them are rather difficult questions to answer. Question one, and these are in no particular order, but question one, what does the term in the text authority mean? Depending on your English translation, it might say authority. The translation I read out of, uh, you might have noticed it actually says domineering. It doesn't say authority. So the question is, what does he mean by authority? Does he mean a godly authority? Does he mean an ungodly domineering authority? What does he mean by exercising authority? What are women not allowed to do? What does the term keep silent mean? Is silence a universal prohibition? Women are never allowed to speak in the gathered congregation. Is silence in reference to something? Uh, how do you live this out in a, in a practical way? If you think about every church you've ever been to, it is unlikely that you've ever had an experience where women were quiet when the service started and only started talking again when the service was over. If this text means silent universal, why is it that churches don't believe that or obey that? So that's a question. What is Paul prohibiting here? A lot of people want to say what Paul isn't prohibiting. Paul isn't prohibiting women from anything. But one of the things we have to ask is Paul is prohibiting something. Now the question is, what is he saying? He says, I do not permit, and then he's, he's giving some commands. Now the question is, what's he prohibiting? What's he not allowing someone to do? That's the question we have to answer. We, have to, we can also ask the question, what does it mean to submit? Does submission mean women to men? Is submission wives to husbands? What is the submission and who is the submission to? Not only what, is, what does it look like to submit, but also to who is submission owed? Because submission isn't universally owed to everybody. Who is submission owed to? What does it mean to teach? You can see how we're taking almost each of these words and asking the question, what do they mean and, and what's the thrust of them? Because uh, what does it mean to teach uh, is different if you're in Paul's pastoral letters than if you're in the Gospels or when you're in 1 Corinthians. Teaching takes on different flavors in different contexts. So in some places, we see women exercising teaching authority. For example, uh, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is a female, and she actually teaches Apollos, and she pulls him aside, instructs him on baptism. And Paul is there for that whole thing and knows that it happens and doesn't rebuke anyone in that, in that process. And then here, Paul writes, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So what does teaching mean? If we want to be consistent with Scripture, we have to answer those questions. If we say teaching means the same thing in every context, we have to say, well, then this is not scripture or Acts is not scripture because they don't agree with each other. So what does teaching mean here in the pastorals? Does the term teaching change over cultures and over times? An example that you can think about with this uh, is in 1 Corinthians 14. No, 1 Corinthians 11 with the head coverings. Is it 1 Corinthians 11? Yeah. Where uh, Paul basically says that's why women should wear head coverings. And then he just says, nevertheless, you know, he just kind of moves on. And many Christians would say, well, that was a culturally relevant symbol of authority, and that doesn't apply to us today in the same way it would then. That's why uh, when you gather with us for worship on Sunday, the women don't wear head coverings uh, to church. And that's because we think that's a culturally bound prohibition. The question is, is this a culturally bound prohibition? If we can argue what all of it means, does that teaching, that, that prohibition, does that actually maintain momentum through into the 21st century? Or is it actually only relevant to Paul's audience in the first century? That's a fair question we can ask. Then we can ask the question about Paul's logic. Okay, so if you look a little bit further to verse uh, 13, you can see uh, he says Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he makes an argument from creation. We can ask this question, how on earth does Paul's prohibition relate to a creation argument? We can ask another question, how does Paul's prohibition relate to the fall? Because he doesn't just say that Adam was, forced for, was formed first, then Eve. He also says, 
Adam was not the one who's deceived, but Eve was the one who was deceived. So what's his argument there? What's he, what's he getting after? Why is he using a creation argument? And then we can ask uh, two more questions, or sorry, three more questions. How is it that women are saved through childbearing? What does that mean? Does that mean uh, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and through the birth of children alone? <laughs> what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? Now, that's, you might say that's a funny question, but honestly, it's a good question to ask. We, we don't often ask these questions. We just assume that they're not true, but we have to ask these questions. Paul says, women are saved through childbearing. What does he mean? And then two more questions. What is the, what is the abiding principle that comes out of these verses? And then the last question, how does, even if we can establish all of that, everyone can agree on the principle, which a lot of Christians would agree on the principle, how does that play itself out in practice in church? So what this means is, Let's say someone agrees what Paul is doing here is he's making a distinction between what men can do in the church and what women can do in the church. And everyone agrees on that principle. Now the question is, well, what does that principle look like on the ground? Does that mean uh, women can teach young boys and up to what age? Or what context counts as teaching and what context counts as teaching with authority? Right? Once you establish the principle, that doesn't actually answer all of the questions because they're also the practical questions. How does that look like lived out on the ground? And churches will answer the practical questions differently, wrestling, all agreeing on the principle, but then having differences as terms of how does that look like in practice. Some churches, for instance, won't let women do announcements from the stage. That's a, a, a principle that they have agreed on, and then in practice, they take it all the way to, to that. Some churches won't let women sing in leadership and worship, but will allow them to sing backup in worship, for example. Uh, some churches will allow women to lead small group discussions, but not preach on Sunday. Uh, some churches will say, actually, I think it's okay for a woman to preach occasionally on Sunday. We have to ask all these questions and say, what, what is the text getting after? What does it mean? And how does the principle relate to the practice? So I've listed only 12 questions. I don't know how many you've uh, been trying to track along with there. But you can see in, in a matter of four verses, we can ask 12 questions of the text. And each of those 12 questions are going to take some care for us to answer. Now, what I'm not going to do, uh, you might be wondering about how we're going to settle this tonight. Uh, what I'm not going to do is settle this tonight. What I am going to do is I'm going to challenge you to do two things over the course of the next couple of weeks. One is, if you have time and you are able to, to try to read through this text a couple of times, possibly in a number of different translations, or possibly uh, through a number of different means, whether that be a commentary or through a sermon on the text or something that will get you thinking through the text. The other thing uh, would be to try to answer all of these questions yourself. And what I mean by that is, as I've listed these questions, uh, all of them are really important for establishing what the argument is. And the reason I want you to be able to answer them is not because I need you to regurgitate what I'm going to tell you the answers are. The reason I want you to be able to answer them is because, let's say you're dealing with someone who's a new Christian or someone who's a Christian who disagrees with you on these things. It's important that you know where the breakdown in communication might occur and how you're going to reason from Scripture to telling someone, this is why I believe what I believe. What you don't want to do, what you don't want to do uh, from the text, is you don't want to say, well, the text says this, and John MacArthur says that, so that's what it is. And if that person doesn't agree with John MacArthur, then you're not really going to get any further. But if you can take the person through the text and walk with them through the text, you have a strong case for why someone should believe that, Right? We want to always challenge our own assumptions on the authority of Scripture. And the last reason I want you to be able to answer these questions uh, is because 
Well, the Word of God says matters, and particularly with a culture that is asking and challenging the church on these issues, you have to have good answers to these questions. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't know. Because some people would actually reject Christianity entirely for passages like this where it says men and women are different. So Christianity is an outdated religion. It cannot be from an omniscient God because whoever was instructing these texts certainly didn't know all things. He didn't know the 21st century and technology and education. So we have to be able to answer these questions well for a host of reasons, uh, not least of which is discipling people faithfully and being faithful disciples ourselves. So what we're going to do in our time tonight then, uh, as we move into our discussion, is we're not, we, we can deal with some of the questions in the text initially, but we're really going to take a step back and we're going to ask the question, what do we do with the Bible when we bump into texts that we don't know what to do with? How do we approach them? And then uh, we're going to have a fun uh, time to share about, well, what are texts that you've ever bumped into that you've not known what to do with, and how did you approach them, and maybe how are you still approaching them if you're still in kind of that same boat? So with that, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we can get into our discussion. Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for your marvelous word, which is matchless in its beauty and in its glory. And Lord, I acknowledge that as humans, uh, we are so short of your truth, so short of your glory. We just ask for your grace to condescend to our level, to to be understandable to us, uh, to give your spirit of truth to us, to help us to understand and, and reason together. And Lord, that through the next couple of weeks, even uh, taking some steps tonight, uh, that we would be able to understand your word better. Lord, ultimately not to uh, win debates or to be more knowledgeable, uh, but we could, so we could love you more, so we could see you more clearly, and so we could know you better, and so we could serve you more faithfully. We pray this in your name. Amen.